Well, Deuteronomy chapter 7, we're going to be looking at three chapters this morning as we kind of go through this overview of the book of Deuteronomy. And so I'm going to be reading a paragraph or two from each of these chapters as we look at God and and his work among his people, his sovereign election of people to be his his community of faith. We're going to talk about what that means for us, those of us who are part of God's family through faith in Jesus Christ and can look at the people of Israel as as an example, as a picture of what we are to, to be as well how we're to think about God and his provision for us. And so if you're able to, if you would stand in honor of God as we read portions of his word together this morning, beginning in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, beginning in verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods." And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you has chosen you to be a people for his his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt." Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Go down into chapter 8. Chapter 8, he describes God's provision for them, bringing them to the land. Then he says in verse 11 of Deuteronomy 8, Take care, verse 11, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. 
Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and might of my hand have gained me this wealth. You shall therefore remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. In chapter 9, chapter 9, uh, verse, verse 4. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out, the, the Canaanites and others, out before you. Do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. And Heavenly Father, we do ask, just as we, we look at these, these passages, these chapters, you would help us, you would grow us, you would help us to, to love you more, and that we would be able to do that because of your sovereign hand that guides, leads, protects us. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, for your glory. Amen. Well, in the mid-19th century, Charlotte Bronte published a book entitled Jane Eyre. And in the novel, the the character Jane encounters a pastor named Sinjin Rivers. And this this pastor is a pastor with some some Calvinistic leanings. And Jane, as she interacts with this character, sees him as as cold. In fact, she she says that he's not made of flesh but of marble. His heart is is cold. His his heart isn't made of of flesh, but it's it's metal and, and, and stone. And then there's, there's this portion of the novel where Jane listens to the pastor preach. She listens to Sinjin Rivers preach. And, and listen to how she describes his, his sermon. She says, as, as she listened, the heart was thrilled, the mind astonished. Now, if you stop there, that'd be a great way for someone to describe your preaching. The heart was thrilled, the mind was astonished, but she goes on. By the power of the preacher, but neither the heart nor the mind were softened. Throughout the sermon, there was a strange bitterness, an absence of gentleness, stern allusions to Calvinistic doctrines, election, predestination, reprobation were frequent, and each reference to these points sounded like a sentence pronounced for doom. When he had done with the sermon, instead of feeling better, calmer, more enlightened by his discourse, I experienced an inexpressible sadness, for it seemed to me that the eloquence to which I had been listening had sprung from a depth where lay turbid dregs of disappointment. She says, I was sure that Sinjin Rivers, though he be pure-lived, conscientious, zealous, that he had not yet found the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. In other words, Jane believed that the pastor's theology, this, this theology of election and predestination, that 
his theology reflected that the coldness of his personality was just as harsh as his personality. And certainly that, that kind of conception of, of Calvinism or of doctrines like election and, and predestination, it kind of has a reputation, even in our own day, of being kind of cold and, and harsh and unfeeling and un, uncaring. In fact, I know several families who have been part of our, our church who have said, you know, we're, we're leaving and part of the reason is because of the doctrines of election and predestination. We don't think that those, those doctrines are, are loving, certainly not doctrines that would encourage evangelism, caring for others. And that's, 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 a, that's a thing that's happened in our church as well. Now, I think it's certainly true uh, that there, there can be a, a personality type that might be drawn uh, to election, predestination, and can, can present those things in a very harsh way at times. In fact, whenever someone asks me, hey, are, are you a Calvinist? I, I'm hesitant because I, I don't know exactly what they mean whenever they, they say Calvinist. What, is, what, is, what do they mean? What does that term mean for them? There's a pastor I know who said that whenever someone asks him, are you a Calvinist? He says, yes, I'm a Calvinist, just like John Calvin or uh, Charles Spurgeon, the Apostle Paul, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm a Calvinist like those guys. Now, uh, I think that if, if someone was concerned about Calvinism being arrogant and I said that to them, I don't think it would be as funny as it would be whenever this person says it to people. But anyway, all that to say, all that to say. Some people, as they hear doctrines like election and predestination, the election meaning that the idea that God chose people before the foundation of the world to, to save them and bring them, uh, to bring them salvation, some people, when they, they hear those, those doctrines, think that that means that, that God is kind of like this, this person creating a robot and creates these robots, and these robots go around saying, I love God, I love God, and they think that's, that's a very cold thing, right? My understanding of the doctrine of election is, is different, and there's no picture that captures it perfectly, but, but I tend to think of, of a, a person kind of in the middle of the ocean, the waves kind of crashing around them and, and no one around for hundreds of miles. And, and in that moment when the person is, is getting ready to drown, yeah, there, there's a certain amount of, of freedom that that person has, but it's, it's a freedom where the person shouts out, I'm free, glub, 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 as they drown, right? And, and, and predestination, in, in my mind, election means that, that somehow God, in his sovereignty, because of his love, sees a person who's about to be consumed by the waves, and God divinely intervenes in that person's life and, and, and elects and chooses to, to save that person from drowning. To me, that's, that's a better understanding of what happens with election, with God's salvation, with his sovereign choice to deliver people from, from the waves, from from drowning in sin. In fact, to kind of continue, this, this is, I think is very important, to kind of continue the picture of what election is, it's not just God choosing to save a person at some point in time initially and saying, okay, now, now you're saved, now, now go do your thing. But I believe what we see in Scripture with this idea of election is that not only does God save a person, choose to save a person before the foundation of the world, but he chooses to preserve that person. 
In other words, once we're saved, it's not like we're, we're out of the ocean. There's still danger. In fact, as we think about our, ourselves as people who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, there are still dangers to our faith. There are dangers of, of paganism, of materialism, of, of self-righteousness. We're going to like looking at this morning. There are still dangers to our faith. And what the doctrine of election tells me is that there is a loving God who before the foundation of the world saved me. But he didn't just save me. He, he's now preserving me by his, his sovereign power. In other words, the doctrine of election isn't some, in my mind, some, some cold doctrine. It shouldn't, certainly biblically shouldn't be some cold doctrine that says, okay, now we are to envision ourselves as, as robots that, are, that have no choice but to love God or no choice not to, but to not love God. But instead, we are people who, by God's divine power, by his divine grace, we have been saved from sin and not given a heart of stone, but now given a heart of flesh where we can be in relationship with God and love him and walk in obedience to him. In fact, I think one of the, the things that, that happened last week was a little disappointing. You know, as we've been in, in Deuteronomy, we've been talking about this idea that we need to know God in order to love God, and we need to love God in order to obey God, and we need to obey God in order to experience his blessing. And I think uh, last week, as we kind of talked about that, that reality, it was a little bit discouraging. And, and, and it is discouraging if you think about that, that process just from a human perspective. But as we think about election, what does that, that tell us? It tells us that it's not, just, it's not just our responsibility to know God and, and to love God and to obey God so we can experience his blessing, but that God in his sovereignty is, is superseding all of that process that God, by his election, is bringing us so that we can know him. He's enabling us to love him. He's enabling us to walk in obedience to him so that we can experience his blessing. And hopefully this week, hopefully this week, as we look at these three chapters, it will be encouraging to you as you see God's divine work in saving and, and loving and caring for us. So we're here in Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 9. And, and what's taking place? In each of these three chapters, we're seeing that God's sovereign choice, his, his election, is the basis that people have to escape some dangers that they're in. So we're going to look at the dangers that people are in in each chapter, and we're going to see how the fact that God is sovereign over the process of saving them gives, us, gives them and us hope as we look at them. The, the, the main idea that I want you to grasp as we look at these three chapters this morning is, is pretty simple. That, that God's, the main idea I want you to grasp is that God's choice to save us, his, his election, God's choice to save us, delivers us from danger and enables us to love him. So God's sovereign choice to save us, that's election, God's sovereign choice to save us, delivers us from danger, first of all, but then it also enables us to love him. That's what I want us to talk about this morning. Here's the first thing I want you to see as we look at chapter 7, the plight of the Israelites. The first danger I want us to think about is this. We face the danger of paganism. We face the danger of paganism. Look at, look at chapter 7 with me, and here's how we see the text describe this danger. The Israelites are, are called to go into the land, and, and Moses is, is talking about what's going to happen as they, they go into the land. 
And he, he says, you remove the Canaanites. And he mentions several nations, seven nations that are here. So, for example, he mentions the Hittites. And the Hittites were incredibly strong at this period of history. He, he mentions the, the Amorites. The Amorites have been in this region at this point for some 800 years. He mentions the Canaanites. The Canaanites have been in this region for, I think it's over 1,500 years at the point that Moses is speaking. So we're talking about groups that are well established in this region and are numerous. And God says that they are to remove them and they're to remove all the the acraments of their religion as well, all the things that were engaged in the worship of other gods. And listen, he is very explicit as to why they are to do that. Look at verse 4. He says, you're to do this for they, that the people who are there, would turn away your sons from following me. He's talking in the context of marriage. To serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. The people who are in the land represent a, a physical and a spiritual existential danger to the Israelites. The people who are in the land represent a physical danger to the Israelites. They could, they could physically destroy them, but they also represent a spiritual danger to the Israelites. There could be a, a spiritual destruction of the Israelites that takes place as well. And, and what, is, what is Moses saying? He's saying they represent this danger, this danger of paganism. A danger, and pagan, what does paganism mean? Paganism means adopting the, the practices, the religion, the worldview of, of the people who are around you. Now, as we've, as we've been going through the Pentateuch, we've said that the Israelites serve as a model for you and me. And so the question is, do, do you and I face the danger of, of paganism? You say, well, well Daniel, uh, I don't feel like I am drawn to paganism. I don't have a desire to worship sticks. Uh, I don't have a desire to, to chant things. But think about the definition of, of paganism more broadly. And we've talked about this every week that we've been in Deuteronomy. Paganism means, again, adopting the worldview, the practices, the religion of the culture in which you find yourself in. A culture, a religion, a worldview contrary to a a biblical worldview. And as I've suggested in in weeks past, our our tendency to absorb our culture is, is far more pronounced than perhaps we realize. There are values and cultural symbols and things that we assimilate, and, and we don't even think about it. People from other cultures come into our world, and they, they see things, and they say things, and, and we're surprised that they're surprised at the things that we think or say or do. It doesn't just happen like someone from a different region. There's, there's intergenerational cultures as well, right? I was talking to my, my kids recently about some, something we saw on social media and uh, I, I said, hey, I don't understand, I don't understand this, this uh, nautical reference, this reference to, to boats and couples. And my kids said, what are you talking about? I said, this, this ship thing. And now, now some of you kids, you immediately understand what I'm talking about. And some of your parents, I guarantee you, they're still in the dark, unless they're way more enlightened than I am. But I said, what's this, this ship couple thing? And my kids said, no, no, that, that means it's like, it's like when a couple becomes a couple, they... They combine their names 
and it's like a ship name. I said, that makes no sense to me. I don't understand what you're talking about. I said, no, no, it's, it's a thing. Now, I'm telling you, this, this, <laughs> this seems so crazy to me. Just a few minutes ago, I'm like, surely I got that wrong. So I Googled it. Uh, I Googled to make sure I'm not getting this wrong. It is, it's a thing. So a ship, you take two people's names and you combine them together. And the first thing that came up was a website where you can put names together. So I put Whitney's name and my name together and came up with 75 ship names. Names like Wenaniel, uh, Dine, uh, Danny, Danny W. Uh, so there's some pretty good ship names there if you want to, to check that out. Uh, my, my kids, they're in a different culture. And, and the fact that I didn't know what a, a ship thing was, they find hilarious, right? And not only, not only is it intergenerational, it's, 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 it goes deeper than that, right? There are values, there are perspectives, there are beliefs that are, are part of who we are as, as Americans, as people who live in North America, and, and those things we don't even realize that we value or worship. Remember I had a friend come from, from Germany one time and, and when I was in high school, and he was just, just sh- so shocked at how, how materialistic our, our culture was. And, and, and not only materialistic, but he said, you know, just, there's American flags in every classroom. What does that mean? What are you saying? What is that, what is that symbol communicating to you? Now, if it's true that culture is, is so much a part of us that we're not even aware of what beliefs and values and thoughts are shaped by culture, what hope do we have of escaping that? What hope do we have of escaping paganism? Well, God's election, right? Here's what I want you to see. God's election... God's election means he is our possessor. He he, he owns us. Look at what it says here in the text. It talks here about God's election. There's there's five things, just really quickly, I want you to see in this text about God's election. First of all, it says that that he he chose you. The Lord your God, it says in verse 6, has has chosen you. The second thing, in other words, that, that word choice means divine selection, Second, he, he chose you with a purpose. He has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the, the people, there's all the nations, he could have selected any of them, he chose you. The third thing I want you to see here about election is the choice was not based on something inherent within them. He says, verse 7, it wasn't because you were more number, it wasn't that God said, you know what, I'm going to take the biggest people, the best people, the brightest people, that wasn't the reason. Now that's, that's a little perplexing for us, right? When we think about making selections, we usually make those selections based upon the value that what we're choosing has. So I'm at, I'm at a restaurant. I say, you know what, I'm going, out of all the menu items I could choose, I'm Choosing you because you're the tastiest. You know, there's, there's something inherent in what it is that we're choosing that causes us to choose it. But that's not what's happening here. Fourth, we, we see this. The choice is not based upon the object being chosen. The choice is based upon the character of the one who's doing the choosing. 
Isn't that amazing? What does he say? It's based on the character of the one doing the choosing. It says, it wasn't because you were big and bad. Verse 8, it's because the Lord loves you. That word loves means to to, uh, act in a beneficial way toward. In other words, as God God loves, he, he infuses value on the object that he loves, on the persons that he loves. So, why did he, he save? Because he loves and based upon his previous love, the oath that he swore to your fathers. In other words, God's selection is what gives something value. God sovereignly decided to be in a relationship with you. And, and now, now that God sovereignly decided to be in a relationship with you, he's created you to be this, this treasured possession. Out of all the nations of the earth, you are now possessed and owned by God. You can escape the dangers of paganism because God has bought you, he's purchased you, he's brought you into relationship. And the fifth thing we see here about election, it, it, it results in something. Verse 11, you shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. You say, well, Daniel, how in the world does, does uh, divine sovereignty and selection relate to our human will and freedom and responsibility? And, and I, I know the answer to that, but I don't have time to tell you this morning. Um, no, I don't understand the answer to all of those things, right? It's not what we're focusing on this morning. The thing I want you to see here is that God's election of us makes us his treasure possession, allows the Israelites, allows us to escape paganism. We too are a chosen people. First Peter 2.9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What are some principles for us as as we try to apply this truth? Let let me give you a couple thoughts here. So we face the danger of paganism. God's election means that he's our our possessor. We're his treasure possession. What are some things we need to think about? One, I need to realize and acknowledge that paganism is, is an ever-present danger in my life. I need to acknowledge before God that the lure of the values and the beliefs is an ever-present danger in my life. Because if I'm not even aware that that's a danger, it's going to not allow me to be vigilant in fighting against it, right? Another application here is, is I need to understand that even in the midst of paganism, I in, in God's treasured possession set apart for devotion and worship of him. God has, has sovereignly selected me, not for my own exaltation, not so that I could, could go around spouting uh, complex theological truths that would cause people to look at me and say, man, that guy is, is sure is sharp. I have been set apart by God to be devoted to, to worship of him. And as people look at you, would they say, man, that person's life her life, his life, is characterized by a devotion to God, a desire to glorify and worship him. If that's not the case, if others around you would not say that is true about you, there's a danger that we are not living in accordance with how God has divinely called us to live. And then, and I think this is just encouraging for us to have in terms of knowledge, my ability to be a treasured possession, my ability to walk in obedience to God, 
my ability to, to, to escape paganism, it's not based upon my own intrinsic worth and strength and might, but upon God's kind, loving election of me. My ability to overcome the lure of idolatry is grounded in God's sovereign choice to deliver me. And, and so, so how do I respond to that truth? I, it means that I cry out to God. As I find myself in danger, as I find myself hurting spiritually and physically and emotionally, what do I do? I, I don't turn to my own strength and I don't say, you know what, I am a, I'm a mighty spiritual warrior. I'm a, I'm a strong man. I'm a strong woman. I say, you know what, God, you are a sovereign God who has chosen me before the foundation of the world. Please, I'm, I'm crying out to you that you would continue to save deliver and and rescue me. All right, here's the the second danger I want us to think about here from the text. Number two, we face the danger of materialism. We face the danger of materialism. First, uh, here in chapter 8, you kind of go in those, those first ten verses, and it describes God's provision for them in the midst of a place with very few resources. And then the danger begins to be described in verse 11. He says, watch out, take care, be careful, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. The danger is, as God works to provide for them, as he describes in the first ten verses, there's a danger and an irony that his provision for them could actually cause them to forget him. Look at the different ways that he describes this. So verse 11, uh, you're, you're forgetting. Verse 12, you have all these, these things. And then verse 13, you have all these things. Then verse 14, it says, then your heart be lifted up. You, you exalt yourself. There's this, this, this uh, belief that, that you are the one who's providing for yourself and, and you forget the Lord your God. The one who led you in verse 15. The one who fed you in verse 16. Verse 17, you, you, there's, a, there's a possibility not only are you going to forget his work of salvation, not only are you going to forget his provision for you in times of scarcity, but there's also a danger that you're, you're going to forget him entirely and not just forget the things that he's done, but begin to, begin to misremember the things that have taken place in the past. So you know what? I, I'm the one who did this. I've really got this going on. Right? I love so many things that Kevin prayed uh, as, as he's praying before our, our time this mor- during our time this morning. Um, so many of the things that he prayed kind of tie in right with, with what uh, we're, I wanted to focus on, and we did not get together beforehand to talk about what we're going, each uh, going to be sharing. But you mentioned, he mentioned uh, thinking that we had provided for ourselves self-sufficiency. That's exactly what's taking place here, right? This belief that, that we can provide for ourselves. To misremember what's taken place in the past. To, to long with the Israelites say, as they say in verse 17, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. These physical provisions. You know, we, we do this all the time. We're in school. And we get a bad grade on an exam. And what do we do? Oh, man, that teacher, she didn't, uh, she didn't teach this very well, I guess. 
Or you know what, the, the test, this was not what she talked about in class. Or this, is, this is not the material he said that would be on the test. And, and now, you know what, yeah, I got a bad grade, but pff, those teachers get a good grade on a test. I'm a genius. I, mom, dad, uh, you might want to step back a little bit because you are in the presence of awesomeness here. Um, we never say, you know what, that, that teacher was amazing. She, she really communicated the material well, so I was able to do well in this test. We, we looked to ourselves, right? We were watching, we were watching some home videos uh, recently, and there was a home video from, from me in, when I was in middle school. My kids love watching these, I'm sure. And um, there, there was, there was a, a video that my dad had recorded of, of me running a race. I cannot remember this race at all. And at the end of the race, I... I was in dead last in this, this 1600 run. I have not thought about that race, I guarantee you, for 20 something years. I just don't, it, does, it doesn't enter my mind to think about failure, right? It's a natural human reaction. There's a danger here of materialism that as, as, we, as we begin to be, uh, to, to acquire the things of the world in which we live, there's a danger that we could, what, forget God. So how does God's election help us here? God's election of us means that he is our provider. And as we understand this theology, it's not this cold theology that causes us to believe that, that we're better than everyone else. It causes us to, to point our, our hearts and our, our minds to, to God. In this text, God sovereignly provides blessing. He sovereignly provides the means to acquire blessing, physical and spiritual. We see this in the first ten verses. In fact, in the first ten verses, he is sovereignly providing trials that allow us to understand the nature of our hearts, that allow them to understand the nature of the hearts. He says, he humbled you, verse 3. He let you hunger and fed you with manna. Why did he do this? So you would know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. For the New Testament believer, we see this as well. That as we think about God's election and his sovereignty over every aspect of our lives, we, we confess along with Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do we have that we did not receive? If you did receive it, Paul says, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Right? There's no aspect of our lives, be it our our physical abilities, our mental abilities, our emotional stability, our our spiritual strength. There's no aspect of our lives because we believe that God is, is a sovereign God who elects and chooses. There's no aspect of our lives that we can say, you know what? I've, I've provided this for myself. The, the danger of materialism allows us to, to believe that we ourselves are the ones acquiring the material things for us and that those things have value. And, and what, is, what, is, what does God tell his people? No, I'm the one who provides. I'm the one to whom you look. God's, God's sovereign election of us allows us to see this. Here's, here's some thoughts as we think about applying this. We're so anxious, right? You and I are such anxious people. We're worried about tomorrow, we're worried about this afternoon, we're worried about next week, we're worried about what is going to happen in five years, we're worried about when things are good, we're worried, when things are bad, we're worried. What, is, what does this help us understand? As we realize that God's election means that he's our provider, first of all, it helps us realize that God provides not just the bounty, but the times of famine, Right? 
God is sovereign. That means that not only is God sovereignly providing times of bounty, but God is the the God who sovereignly provides the times of famine as well. And we see in this text, it says that he does this because he loves you, because he set his favor upon you. He's testing you so that you can, can see what's in your heart and can turn to the one who is the ultimate provider. We see another application here that, that the material stuff should, should yield eternal benefits, not, not temporary snares. Scripture describes wealth as, as a snare, and that the, the person who it says in 1 Timothy 6, who desires to be rich, falls into all sorts of temptation. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content, Paul tells Timothy. Another application here is as we look at what happens here in Deuteronomy 8 and, and the constant call God gives the people here to remember, remember, remember. Another application here is, is I need to remember. I need to, to set benchmarks in my life that allow me to remember and, and trust in God's provision. When I was in high school, my, my dad sat me down and, and he... Uh, fired up the old computer and whirled around and we opened up uh, and I saw for the, kind of the first time I intera- interacted with this, this amazing thing called Excel, right? this Excel spreadsheet. And uh, th- I think the Excel spreadsheet was the reason my dad had purchased uh, the computer in the first place. He loved spreadsheets. It's genetic. Um, and he showed me the budget. You know, for the first here's dad showing this, the high school kid the, the budget, and, and he, he, he was just walked through. Here's how you here's how you balance a budget. And he goes, now I want you to be in charge of, of writing the checks for our family this month. And he goes, now the first check, the first check we write is, is our our tithe to the church. Right? He says we we do that because I want to as I begin looking at, at finances, I want to begin by thinking about God and His provision. I'm going to trust in him. and Whatever else is left, we're going to deal with it, but we're going to give it. Now, I'm not saying everyone, every person has to do that, but I think there needs to be things built into our lives that allow us to say, you know what? God is the provider. I'm, I'm trusting in him. And I'm remembering how he's sustained me. My, my parents, you know, in the early 80s, my dad's an engineer. The early 80s were a rough time financially. My dad loved to, to talk about, you know, God sustained us. We never went hungry during this time. We never didn't have something that we needed by God's grace. We need to actively remember what God has done. Last thing, third thing here. We face the danger of self-righteousness in chapter 9. We face the danger of self-righteousness. Moses, Moses describes the danger you know, in chapter 7, they had a wrong understanding regarding how their size might be the basis of their success. Now there's an acknowledgement, okay, maybe it's not our size, but maybe it's, maybe it's because we're so super. And, and so God says, no, 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 uh, you need to be very careful. You need to realize that it's not because of your righteousness. In fact, as we go through the Old Testament, we see this constant, steady drumbeat of warning against self-righteousness. For example, Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah says, he's talking about their wickedness. He says that they're, they're guilty of the blood of the poor, and yet even though the people are guilty of the blood of the poor, they haven't repented. In fact, they say, this is Jeremiah talking to the people who are guilty of the blood of the poor, you say, I'm innocent. Surely his anger is turned away from me. Behold, God says, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. 
So the people of Israel are, are guilty of, of shedding innocent blood, and they're saying, hey, we are good. God is not going to be upset with us. And God says, I'm going to, I'm going to deal with your sin, specifically the sin of thinking you haven't sinned. What is that? That's self-righteousness. Now, why is self-righteousness so dangerous? What do we need? Kevin, in his prayer, said, our greatest need is what? It's, it's for the restoration of our relationship with God. We need God to, to forgive us. We need God to give us Christ's righteousness. We cannot receive that righteousness if we are self-righteous. We need God to provide us with his righteousness. And after he's provided us with that righteousness, we need to continue in trusting in him and him alone for our salvation. Now, what hope do we have that we can continue to do that? Well, here's what we see about God's election. God's election of us means that we can take comfort that he is our preserver. The danger of self-righteousness is a danger that is ever-present in my heart. That I, like the Israelites, would say, you know what, Um, I, I think that God has selected me because at least I'm not like those whatevers over there. That whoever over that place, there's something better about me than other people. Keeping in mind the understanding of God's election, that God sovereignly chose me before I was born, before I had done anything good or bad, allows me to say, no, it's, it's God who's going to be my preserver. God grounds his salvation not in our righteousness, but in his own righteousness. In fact, as you go through the rest of chapter 9, as you go through the rest of of chapter 9, it's very interesting. He says, don't say in your heart, God's thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness. And then he just, Moses just destroys them through the rest of the chapter, right? He just destroys them. He talks about time after time after time that they're rebellious and self-centered and self-righteous and, and their absolute inability to walk in obedience to God. And he, and he says, um, he says that, that he had to plead with God not to destroy you. So verse 8, God was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. That's not really something you can kind of brag about. And he says, I, I pleaded with you. And here's what I want you to see about Moses, how Moses pleaded with God For the people of Israel. He says. As as he goes through. And talks about how how he pleaded. He says that. um, I was afraid. Of the anger and hot displeasure. That the Lord bore against you. So that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me at that time also. He says. He says in verse 25, I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Notice, what is he grounding God's forgiveness in? He doesn't say, yeah, God, I know these guys. They make some mistakes, but they are hilarious. You're going to love them. They're just, just watch. They're going to be so much fun to hang out with. How, what does Moses ground his hope of God's forgiveness in? He, he grounds it in God 
and, and in his love and in the greatness of his name. Listen, go on. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. Lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he's brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your power and by your outstretched arm. Now, how does that give us comfort? How does that give us comfort? I want you to think about that question as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. As I think about my standing before God, there's a sense in which I should be ever aware of my my sin against a holy God. In fact, our, our family this week, they said it was okay if I shared this. You know, our family this week, we have a lot of times in our life, we have a lot of time going on, and I would say all of us in our family struggle with sinful responses to stress. Sinful responses to stress. And I was talking with one of my, one of my kids about this, and I said, look, I'm, I'm not shocked that you had a bad response to, stressful, to a stressful situation. What I need to know is, do you believe that it was sin and are you willing to trust God to help you change in that area? In other words, I'm not surprised at the presence of sin in my life because if, if I was relying upon my self-righteousness, then, then, I would, then I would be shocked to find sin. But it's good to recognize, hey, there's sin here, and what do I need? I need the righteousness that's not inherent in me but, but comes from God. I want to invite the, the men to, to come forward and, and begin to prepare to, to pass out the, the elements of communion. But, but as they do so, as they do so, let's, let's think about these as, as principles for application. I deserve God's wrath. And I, I deserve God's wrath. This is very important, I think, for Christians to understand. I deserve God's wrath not just because of the things I did before I was a Christian, I deserve God's wrath for the things that I have continued to do as a Christian. In, in other words, if, if, God's, if, if God's salvation was kind of about me, my responsibility, me responding the right way, I would be in a lot of trouble. But God's election says, no, God is the one who chose. God is the one who preserves. God is the one who sustains. My standing in Christ's righteousness is an eternal proclamation of the glory of of God's grace. It will continue to, to praise and glorify God's name for eternity. I'm going to invite the men here to begin in just, just a moment. Let me, let me pray for us. But as, as they pass out the elements, I want you, and, as, and as you hold those elements, I want you to think about the absolute sufficiency that Christ's sacrifice provides for us. In other words, as we think about our sinfulness, we recognize that that the, the bread and the cup represent Christ's absolute, complete, perfect work in paying for the penalty of our sin. That's God's election. That's our hope of his preservation. And Father, we do ask that by your grace, as we meditate upon these truths, you would change us, you would give us hope, you would give us strength in your son Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen.